When I was a child, I played by myself in a corner of the schoolyard all alone. I hated dolls and I hated games. Animals were not friendly and birds flew away. If anyone was looking for me, I hid behind a tree and cried out, I am an orphan. And here I am, the centre of all beauty, writing these poems. Imagine. That's um, a poem by uh, Frank O'Hara called uh, Autobiographia Literaria, which I badly misquote in this episode uh, in a moment of genuine rapport with today's guest, Helen MacDonald. Um, Helen MacDonald, you'll probably know, but if you don't, that's fine. We don't know. We don't all know everyone. There's lots of writers I don't know. Uh, wrote uh, H's for Hawk, which won many <laughs> prizes around the world. It's a it's kind of a mix of things. I think one of the most interesting things about it is how uh, difficult it is to pin down quite what the genre is. It's part memoir. It's part st the story of her grief when her father died it's also partly about her training a hawk um it's also a partly a biography of the author th white who also attempted to do a similar thing there's lots of nature writing there's some incredible passages about the history of England it's really good and I, I think the fact that it won loads of awards and as I mentioned in the show was on Barack Obama's summer reading list um just shows how what uh, such a on the face of it unusual book is just did so well and found so many places in so many people's hearts including mine I read it and so I was um, really excited to talk to Helen about that and also about her poetry and also about, mainly about stuff that I think you'll be, you'll find useful. You know, I think that's part of what this show does. As mercenary as it is, is the point isn't to um, to get people on so we can feel all excited and starstruck in their presence. Although, of course... Every writer I talk to is it's a real genuine thrill for me and I get very nervous and I get very excited. But um it's to it's to ruthlessly strip mine their actual life and their craft for parts and moves that we can nick and maybe feel slightly less alone as writers as we try to do stuff try to do this slightly this extremely difficult task and make sense of it and do it well and not feel like total frauds or failures which is why it's exciting and I found this chat with Helen inspirational I feel I felt after it all this week I felt re-energized and so excited about my writing uh, and I think you I hope that you will there's some great craft stuff, but there's also she really opens up about the fundamentals of 
tapping into something mysterious and a place where that language can come from. And you still say, and that, that, and then there's some other techniques as well that I think you'll find. That's it. That you'll find really fun to try out. We get into. Uh, she goes really deep on a few moves she used to get her through difficult parts of her manuscript, and um, she was a bit embarrassed about sharing them. But I actually think they sound super fun and super cool and they're really easy for you to pick up so i'm just teasing that so you uh listen in but we talked uh, for a long time um there is uh so one thing i'm not particularly good at at the moment yet is being a sound engineer so uh i've tried to sort out the levels as much as i can but as usual i'm super loud and there's some squeaking which at first i thought was the piano stool i was sitting on and then i remembered that Helen very on brand um, and she mentions it in the interview had brought around a parrot so you can hear her parrot who's uh, who was lo- lovely splendid boy um, you can hear him uh, squeaking in the background sometimes but I, I, I think that just I, I was having a rubbish day up until the point that Helen came round, and I think it's hard to feel down on yourself when you when you meet meet a parrot when you meet a parrot unexpectedly as well unless it's kind of like i suppose coming for your face in which case i think even self-preservation would probably kick in to override feelings of uh, shame and guilt and anxiety in any case i won't go on much except to say look if you enjoy the show not sponsored so consider clicking the links in the show notes uh, you can buy Helen's work and support her. Uh, you can you can buy mine. You can buy the honours. If you haven't bought a copy of my book, it's much appreciated. And I think you'll enjoy it. And I'd love to hear what you think of it as well. So if you read it, do get in touch and let me know what you think. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, and also, if you just want to drop me a few beans for the show, then you can just go and uh, click on my uh, coffee page and... Uh, just two clicks and you can uh, drop me a few squids for my trouble into the uh, upturned hat, upturned e-hat of the attention economy. Look, uh, I, I think I'll, I'll leave it there, but I really enjoyed recording this. I'm extremely grateful to Hedimer for coming round to my house and chatting to me. I don't believe I get to do this and get to be so impertinent as to have these lovely chats with writers and ask them questions and and get to learn from them. It's just ace, and I'm having a ball, I really am. So without further ado, um, here's my chat with Helen MacDonald. I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and I am your guide through the wondrous and sometimes tedious and uh, and, 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 and shitful world of um, creative writing. Um, and I 
I'm not alone today because I'm here with the author Helen MacDonald. How are you? I'm good, thanks. It's uh, it's Saharan weather, so I'm sort of sweating a bit here, but I'm I'm very happy to be here. It's it's brilliant to be here. Yeah, I believe that uh, Norfolk is a uh, semi-arid climate. That's uh, my one bit of um, climate-based research that I picked up from. UEA is that tr- that's probably not even I true. I think I think that East Anglia, uh, if you take a, a, a sort of drop a line south, the nearest place the, that's as wet as East Anglia is, is a southern Spain. So it's it's a super super dry spot. But even so, you know, I'm I'm hearing the Lawrence of Arabia theme tune when I drive around in this weather. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty unusual this year. Yeah, um, it has been um, it's been very dry, and then it was suddenly very wet, and everything, all the plants that I was tentatively trying to grow in the back garden suddenly got smashed by torrential rain and now um, look like they've all been sat on. So as a measure of my extreme geekitude, there's a there's a webpage called, uh, I think it's called lightningmaps.org and it gives you real-time lightning flashes across the <sighs> world. And I spent most of last week just refreshing it over and over again, watching the storms come towards me. It was it was marvellous. Do you know, where, where is, is there like, is there like a central hub of lightning in the world? Is there yes, like a there place is. where there you is. can... It's somewhere in Africa, and if you go there, I think it's something... It's got... This is completely at the top of my head, you know, topofmyhead.com. But uh, I think it has lightning, this particular part of Africa. I think it's pretty much 250 days a year, every night there's lightning. <sighs> People go there just to be freaked out. It's incredibly dangerous. Because <laughs> I remember when I was in Brunei, the school that I visited had a... So Brunei, you know, for people listening, because I know... I didn't know as well because I think I'm saying Dubai, but Brunei on the north part of the of the Bornean jungle, and the school playground had a big lightning alarm. So basically, when light it would that would start flashing, it was like a great big orange sign, and a siren would go off and sound if the children are in danger of being nailed by lightning bolts on the on the football pitch, which made. That's amazing. It seemed I mean, terrifically we, exciting to me. The only alarm we had at school, apart from the fire alarm, was that was the uh, you know the scandal of the uh, the ice cream truck guy who came and sold hardcore porn under the under the under the counter, as it were. Wow! And, and got found out. But yeah, his so his alarm was the only sort of slightly dubious alarm. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I know, right? Dude. Comprehensive school in Surrey. That's what happens. That's incredible. <laughs> I, I, of course, I didn't know about this till years later. So, so oh, so it was just a uh, yeah. I mean, I have to. Maybe I was just the kind of I was I think I was the kind of kid who would probably have been buying the ice cream to unfortunately not wanting to paint myself as too sad a character, but <laughs> I think even in the pre internet days, um Yeah, me too. I just was drawn more to food. So yes. um there's so many things that I, I want to talk about, um and so many things that I'm going to sort of clumsily um stumble towards about your uh writing and all the different aspects of craft but the thing I wanted to start with partly because it's a good opener and partly because it's just it, it kind of like forms a nice basis for what, what we talk about I'd l- and there is an element of self-mythologizing here always but as uh, in your childhood what were the what were the th- key things about your childhood that you think led you into writing and words I was an extremely strange child. Um, I had this bizarre childhood. I, my brother was born in 76, I was on my own. My parents, who were both hard-bitten journalists, decided to buy this house in a place in Camberley, Surrey, called Teckles Park, which was a, 
I mean, it was it was like 100, 100 children's books. It was a run-down, faded, falling-apart old country estate with Italianate gardens and old swimming pools full of dead leaves and frogs and newts, and it had meadows and trees to climb. It was and it was just epic. And it was owned by the Theosophical Society. So that's like Helena Blavatsky? Yes, absolutely. So it was, it was uh, apart from my parents, who obviously were not theosophists and didn't really know what it was when we moved there, um, it was a, a place completely filled with the most gloriously eccentric old ladies. Um, there was Kate Batty Smith, and there was one. One of them had a had a great orc egg in a drawer. Um, Kate Batty Smith, famously, I remember once I'd been to Birdworld and I saw some pink flamingos standing in a concrete puddle. I think there were three of them, and I said to her, "Miss Batty Smith, I saw some flamingos." And she said, "Oh yes, darling, isn't it extraordinary? The whole sky goes pink with their wings." You know, they all basically grew up in you know various parts of the empire. But they wow. were all black sheep of their family, as it were. They were all kind of, they all were spiritualists. And I, they really, one of the things I think my writing has been affected by is that sense that they had rejected all the notions, you know, that they were given about how women should behave. They were eccentric as anything. So I grew up thinking that I could do what I wanted rather than, you know, get married, have kids, work in a shop. So I ended up writing partly as a sort of, from that inspiration, and partly also because the park was just the place I became a naturalist. I was a strange child in the sense that I was quite solitary and quite hidey. I used to hide a lot. I used to go climbing trees and then sit up there for hours watching people come past and you know they couldn't see me. Like like a bit like there's an Agatha Christie where someone does that and you know they always end up seeing a murder. I didn't see a murder but that's what I did. Um, and I learned to name all the creatures that I saw. I went through this huge craze of field guides um, so those two things, I think, that, that notion that I could be whoever I wanted and that notion that the world was a complicated place full of lots of life that wasn't human um, were the two real inspirations for me. And, of course, my, my ridiculous childhood reading, which, you know, it started off at Enid Blyton, but pretty soon it went on to all sorts of things. I mean, I read The Coral Island by Ballantyne when I was sort of seven. You know, I think I'm the only person in the 20th wow. century to have read that, uh, n you know, not... <laughs> Not in comparison to Lord of the yeah. Um And, oops, sorry, I kicked the microphone there. I, um, but my favourite back then were uh, the Willard Price adventure books. Um, so I think I was sort of a curious kid gender-wise. I, you know, I, I knew I was a girl. I was happy to be a girl. But all the books I read were all boys going out and catching animals and hunting in the wild. What are the Willard, what's the Willard, Willard Price adventure? Willard Price, oh, these are great. So they were a, a collection of books about two, looking back on it, absurdly privileged white boys who worked for their father, who was mysteriously never present, um, catching animals for zoos. And they would go off to various parts of the world and they would catch animals and we'd learn all about the animals as you read it. And, and they were always followed by some Australian convict called Mags, who hmm. was going to come up at some point. But I, a lot of what I learned about animals came from those books. And I used to write terrible pastiches of them when I was a kid. Um, I think I've still got some somewhere. I must try and drag them out, yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you, what do you think... What do you think was behind that impulse to learn the names of different animals? Because I, I feel like I understand. I, you know, my dad tells me that before I could speak, I used to be able to name. Before I could speak properly to people, I used to be able to name. Like he had a the British uh, book of planes, and I could name every single plane. Now I could not. I can barely like identify an aircraft now. I can like just about so change from that book. That's why they're all, they're all they're all new planes now. But but what do you think was behind what made yeah. what? Can you remember what made you want yeah. to know? Yeah, and I think there's there's just two very definite reasons for that. One is that I was quite lonely, and I think I considered the animals and plants and creatures around me to be 
something like voiceless friends. They just made my world full of full of non-human people. Um, and partly too, also, I think most of my brain is odd uh, or not usual in that my dad was a massive plane spotter. Um, I think both he and I probably on the spectrum somewhere. And I just used to love classifying things, classifying things, taxonomizing things, um, learning things in sequences. It's always been a pleasure to me. And that's part of it, I think. Yeah, I think I definitely because I, de I definitely have that. I definitely I can read that really resonates with me love because knowing it's an important part. Yeah, it's it's funny that, that there's an impulse to say to even as we talk about it, even as we basically both feel the same way, but maybe about slightly different things, that there's that impulse to to, to make it safe for other people by going, I know it's strange, I know it's peculiar, yeah, I know true. it's other. Yeah. We're uh, a diverse species, I guess. I, it wasn't supposed to sound like an apology, but I was always very aware at school that I was the only kid in the, I think probably in the school, who would know what what all the trees were called or you know what the birds flying overhead was and it was a kind of strange it was an odd estrangement uh socially to know those things but i'm not i'm not i'm not ashamed of it yeah i to, to me you feel you can hear feel... there's a small parrot in the background making noises that's my parrot so i brought him along to the this recording so if you hear any whistling in the background that's what it is yeah just so we just have him here so he doesn't feel doesn't feel uh stressed he's I definitely feel immediate kinship with with you as well. I sometimes I think, yeah, get a bit yeah. anxious this on my is own. Basically, a room full of slightly anxious beings. So we're all we're all here together. So I'm just sort of jumping forward a bit because I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your poetry, and I know you've uh, you've written uh, quite a bit. And some people who've read your uh, uh, read your work might not have might not have encountered your poems. And I just well, the first thing I want to ask is like, what, what was? Can you remember like a first poem that made you go, "Wow!" or somehow did something to you that you weren't expecting? Yes, yeah, I can. And oddly enough, it wasn't when I was small. So uh, you know, growing up, there was sort of golden treasury type, you know, Victorian books lying around with poems in, and I used to try and copy them. I remember one terrible poem I wrote to primary school that rhymed flower and fairy bower i mean they were bad um, <laughs> i have a was, grudging respect for yeah, that <laughs> it was pretty bad um it was at university you know i i at that point i'd love i love my shakespeare but I, I sort of had fallen out of poetry and then i read some franco horror and just it just was like someone had knocked me on the head and um i felt just full of bubbly champagne drinking joy i mean i just think that voice that flexible slightly catty uh voice of um, a, a man who loved the world and I think this is something that I I really uh, more than anything else love in, in works of literature is that sense of there being a deep love of things you know I'm, I'm not really a very good person with cynicism I find it very stressful and boring so that sense that one could put down on the page in this wonderfully flexible kind of confiding voice um, and of course you know that Frank O'Hara was rumoured to have written a lot of his poems and some of his books at lunchtime on typewriters in typewriter shops. Um, that combination of ease and deep learning just did things to me. I loved it. Frank O'Hara writes about being a, a strange child. Is it is that poem called Autobiography where he talks about um, something like, I was a strange child. Um, people, animals were not friendly and birds flew away. away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he ends it with, uh, and now here I am surrounded by all this beauty imagine 
Yeah, it's fantastic. <sighs> <laughs> Seriously, anyone who's listened to this, who hasn't read Frank O'Hara, get out there. It is something you have to you have to be in the right mindset for. If you are if you are a teenager looking for very worthy, difficult kind yeah. of a riddly cryptic yeah. poems, yeah. I definitely sometimes you know show Frank O'Hara to Year Nines, and they they struggle to find their way in because they're going. A oh, poetry has oh, to be it's this richness. True. It's true. You know, it's very interesting that because I, I remember certainly realizing that when I was younger I was I put great store by obscurity and difficulty and I'm kind of over that now not to say that it's it's a progression it's just the the sense that I need to puzzle things out has been overtaken by a sense that I want to I want to hear I want to hear sincerity you know um you know I, I used to love the poems of Jeremy Prynne and the whole Cambridge school when I was at university and a lot of my poems I wrote then were very much of that of that kind but I never saw their obscurity as a something that was meant to put off the reader. I always thought of them as a, big, a, bit, a little bit like um, cryptic crossword puzzles, that it would be fun for a reader to pick them up and try and work out how they're put together. Um, but looking back on it now, they, my poems from then do seem willfully obscure. So uh, yeah, I've changed. Yeah, I guess it's like, there's a dip, but there's a difference between writing something because it's the, because it, it represents where, where you are, uh, I, I suppose it's like deliberately kind of like hiding something and put putting all these kind of barriers up to show to demonstrate one's kind of worldliness and how you know like that thing I find slightly irritating with some of Pound stuff where you feel like he's just saying look at where I've been on my holidays look at all these different languages I know I'm not convinced and, and of course you don't we don't know who's being sincere and who's not but um and then there's people who write something that seems obscure and that's just because yeah, They're I mean, weird, the, the, right? I have a, as you probably know, uh, I have a deep, deep love of the poetry and prose of um, Roger Langley, um, poet and natural historian and teacher who's unfortunately no longer with us. And um, I think if you, you know, to, to get a sense of, you know, the kind of top of my heap, as it were, in terms of writing about the natural world, look at his poems. They're, they're extremely clear. They're extremely complicated. He does a lot of syllabics, so they're very measured. And yet reading them, one still has the idea that has the distinct feeling that there's a a consciousness that's witnessing the natural world and you're using that sighting to try and kind of limb in or enter upon a disquisition about life and death and all that there is i mean it's it's masterful so yeah what Frank do you are in rf langley what do you think i mean either when you're writing poems or when you are looking at poems this is, I feel like this is a big question okay so we're ready to go no <laughs> what what is the what is the point of poetry because I just think from you know from what you're saying you seem to be kind of like me I, it just reminded me of um how uh, uh, we this idea of poems being like this kind of pickled moment that we then kind of like unscrew the jar and someone can uh, take out later and examine. Uh, is that, it? I mean, I, I think like uh, Osip Mandelstam, I was reading his journey to Armenia and he talks about his idea of poetry being like this command that once 
understood is then executed and immediately forgotten. The, forget, the forgetting is important, I think, yeah. What, what, what f- so, to you, what is... I just want to... I remember someone once told me that they thought the difference between poetry and prose was of the order of between a, a double espresso and a, a, von, a sort of venti, you know, frappuccino, which I thought was incredibly unhelpful but funny. Hmm. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, I think it's that, that notion of, of clockwork. Um, there's, some, there's some particular joy to seeing a mechanism that's very small, working perfectly. And certainly when, I mean, I write poetry and I write prose, but there's something um, about poetry that reminds me of painting. I've done a lot of painting as well. And there's a, this lovely moment when you're painting, well, when I'm painting, where you're, you get the sense that the, the painting is about to shut you out. You can't do any more to it, it's done. And when I'm writing poems, there's a definite sense that I'm working towards that moment where all the parts click into place, the gears start turning, and I cannot do any more to it, and it shuts me out. Um, and I just think there's a sort of, there's a way in which that creating something which works on its own is a particular kind of joy. And that's really something that I don't get with prose, except obviously, you know, as you write paragraphs, you, you want them to work and then link them together. But that notion that you could sit down for an afternoon and create something beautiful and jeweled that fits into your hand, as it were, that's a special joy, yeah. How long have you been painting for? Is that something you've always done? Or? Well, I wanted to be a painter when I was small. That's what I wanted to do. Um, apart from that time when I wanted to keep otters and live in a Scottish island. But I may have been reading Ring of Bright Water and didn't <laughs> quite realise how unbelievably damaged that book was. Um, always, yeah. And I, I, I've illustrated a few books um, over the last sort of few years. I don't really have time to do it now. Um, it's definitely affected how I, how I write in the sense that when I look at a landscape now, the first thing I've all I've, I've done, and that's for years, I always block out the colour values. So I, I think I'm quite a visual person. Gosh, doesn't it sound awful? I don't think I'm quite a visual person. No, um, it doesn't at all. But... I was going to ask what... <laughs> yeah. I, but I was going to just like try and... what When you say block out the colour value, yeah, just because yeah. I, I don't know what that means. Yeah, that was kind of all jargony. So, so yeah, look at a landscape. I mean, rather than looking at trying to, you know, the sort of, it's second order looking at what's there, so houses and trees and particular kinds of plants. I mean, that's sort of second comes second. First of all, I'm always thinking, where are the darkest tones? Uh, where are the palest tones? How do those things run into each other? Where are the areas where you're not sure what you can see? Um, so that if you were to lay it down on canvas or on paper, you would start with the darkest tones and work up. So you've got this, this sense of a landscape as, a, as an aesthetic object in front of you that you can work into something which you've made yourself. Uh, and that's something I can't help. Yeah, because I, I think of like Mervyn Peake, you know, yeah. he was a yeah. I- illustrator and I feel like reading Gormenghast, you really get uh, right from the first like description of uh, the, the uh, rock cod, the uh, archivist, you get a sense that this is someone who sees his characters and, you know, often starting at the eyes will kind of move out, but all his landscapes and I... I did, you know, I, it's you know quite a uh, maybe perhaps a banal observation, but I feel like in your work, both in your poems and in uh, your non-fiction, your ability to make me see things and at least feel like I'm seeing them is really good because, like you say, you know all the you know all these different words for things, but also being able to kind of like pull us up with you. And I just, that's why I kind of wanted, because I, I felt like, and I realised like it could be glib. Like certainly, you know, I'm 
when I've, you know, had my work looked at and people know I'm a poet, they go, oh, you can see the poet in here. And I'm like, well, all my poems are about like willies and farts. You don't, you're just <laughs> saying that. So, you know, the, I, I'm, I'm trying to stop myself yeah. saying, or oh, you can see your painter's eye in it. But <laughs> Well, no, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's just present. And, and I, I, you know, it's, it's very hard for me to go out into the landscape at all, into the environment and not constantly try and work out what are the sensory inputs I'm getting. I mean, that sounds very horizon on sort of new scientist, doesn't it? But I mean, you know, things smell, things feel, things touch, you know, the, the, the sort of air on your skin. It's very easy to write narratives and leave those things out. You know, one of the great masters, I think, of, of incredibly terse uh, descriptions of the environment, which yet are astoundingly evocative, is John le Carre. You know, he can mention a street after rain, you know, in, in a sentence and a half and suddenly you're there. Mm. Um and oddly enough, the more I the more I read Le Carre, the particularly the early works, the more I realise how much he's influenced me. You know, those that sense of a sort of driving narrative with with enormous attention paid to uh, character. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he's a master. So it's weird how this, the things that you, you know, when, when I just sorry to rush forward, when I wrote Ages for Hawk, you know, people have often said to me, you know, it's got a very driving kind of almost like a whodunit sort of feel, and yet it's got all this kind of flowery language, and I'm sort of start laughing because when I wrote it, I couldn't read anything. But I could listen to Agatha Christie radio dramas and BBC Shakespeare productions. So pretty much, <laughs> I think that book, all the flowery parts are basically misheard Shakespeare and all, all and the narrative drive might just be that I read, I listened to a lot of Poirot and Miss Marple. But um, I probably shouldn't have said that, but I'm pretty sure that that was part of it. I think that's wonderful because that it's, it's those, I think orig originality so often is the mistranslation or having the wrong influences. Being someone who reads one type of thing and is kind of, quote unquote, destined to write something else, you know? This reminds me very much of this, the great story about Pink Floyd in the 1960s when they, they, you know, they really felt that they wanted to be like these West Coast American psychedelic groups like Jefferson Airplane. They hadn't actually heard Jefferson Airplane or any <laughs> of these groups, so they tried to do what they thought those groups sounded like, which of course was nothing like them. But it was just the sense that trying to copy something that you don't actually know what it is that you're copying I, I something think, else comes out it's really exciting yeah bad forgery is like just brings in it's like That's evolution it, right? bad forgery is the way to write go for it yeah and it just it it, it just creates these random mutations and some of those things turn out uh yeah. really really uh, surprisingly well yeah. um which is a scary thing to think about that, that there's that element of just chance bubbling away in your creativity so i wanted to um, before we get to H's, H's for Hawk, uh, I I wanted to talk a little bit about because that is that didn't just like pop out of nowhere. I know for some people who who read it, it just seems yeah, like, like you a, just like, like synthesize I know, like Athena out of Zeus's head. No, it wasn't like that. I had done things before that. Yeah, and so I, I'm just I'm trying to sort of and I'm partly trying to build up kind of like your the history that led you there as well to stop because I know people will be listening and they will have read it and will be so intimidated by what they see as this kind of like incredible uh, no, work. No, don't be. I mean, half the time I wrote it, I was. Um... I, I was literally thinking no one is ever going to read this. You know, I was convinced of it. I thought it was a weird one, but we can get to that in a bit. So can, um, yeah. can we talk a bit before that about, um, well, about Falcon maybe and kind of yes. what, is that, is, is that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I just to, to sort of go back slightly, I, I, I um, you know, I wanted to be a falconer when I was a kid. Uh, my parents said, why don't you become a lawyer? I said, no. What about, what about a doctor? No, I want to be a falconer. Okay. So I, but my maths was terrible. I couldn't be a biologist. So I became, I did an English degree. 
And then after that, as you do, I went off and worked in the Middle East breeding falcons for Arab sheikhs, which and doing conservation work out there, which was how was that? Uh, interesting. It made me realise how many conservation initi- initiatives fail because the cultural meaning of the animals in question aren't, aren't taken into account. So I got very interested in that. Came back, started doing an M for the history of science. Started to investigate the relationships that we have with animals and the ways we use them to to um, understand the world and to see ourselves. Um, and then I became a research fellow. Failed to do my PhD because you know that's me. Um, but I began to realize that there are all these amazing analytical kind of shapes and, and thoughts and kind of a whole kind of category of um, literature that was only really available to those in the academy. And it was fascinating stuff. And I thought, why, why can't I just write this for everyone? This is just crazy. So I thought I would start writing books. So I wrote Falcon as kind of a halfway house, really. It's a really weird book. It's a cultural history of falcons. It's part of the reaction um, animal series. And reading it now is, is slightly excruciating for me because it's clearly the work of someone who wants to break away from academic jargon, but hasn't quite managed it. <laughs> so it basically um, was a joy to write. Um, and it's it's all the stuff that I was going to put in my PhD, but was too fun, basically. So anecdotes about falconers being chased out of New York by mafia bosses because the falconers falcons were catching their pigeons and, you know, space space stuff and Air Force stuff. It was really fun to write. So that when that you when you answer, sorry. yeah no no I no I but when I just was really interested by when you said that these were all things that were available to the academy but not to other people because that's quite a scary so yeah it is scary I mean you know look at look at the so most of the stuff I was reading at that point I mean there were a few books all of those books were sort of you know eighty to hundred pounds to buy on the open market. <sighs> Um, I guess you could order them through libraries, but if you don't know they're there, you can't come across them. Um, Most of the papers I was reading were from um, journals which were, you know, again, unbelievably expensive, um, only found in certain libraries. And if you wanted to buy those papers online, it would cost you a lot of money. And it just made me cross, you know, I just, I have this rather sort of, you know, utopian notion that knowledge is for everyone, you know. And um, I thought that if I could take some of that stuff and bring it out of the walls as it were it might be quite it would, make, it would be a good thing to do yeah so yeah which brings us which brings us kind of like it, yeah towards towards h's for hawk now there's i'm, I'm very conscious that there's two stories yeah. here yeah there's the one which is the events of the book mm-hmm. that allow you to write it as i the, said did they really happen the answer is yes they <laughs> did really happen and the other one is your decision to write them down and make a narrative out of it. And I just like to, um, um, for people who, I, you know, I said a little uh, summary at the beginning, I can't imagine there's many people who don't know what it's about, but would you be able to give a short summary of what, 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 what goes into it? But then yeah. also I'd like to kind of like drill down slightly into the decision to, for you to actually sit down and go, yeah. I'm going to start putting words on the page to yeah. document this somehow. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I obviously I've been talking about this book for a while now. It came out quite a long time ago. So my, you know, take home sort of what is it about now? I tend to just say it's about a miserable woman, a dead author and a bird. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a bit more than that. So my dad died very suddenly in 2007. Um, I decided to train a goshawk as a way of dealing with this grief. I don't recommend this generally. Um, I've been a falcon all my life, but goshawks to me then seemed things of death and difficulty and bloodthirstiness and murderousness and 
horrible power. I never wanted to go near them, but of course I was full of this wild grief and I decided that that's what I'd do. So basically it's a story of me training a gospel and going completely nuts, um, living in this feral existence. Um, and twined up with that is a kind of shadow biography of the writer T.H. White, who also tried to train a goshawk in the 1930s and made a really bad job of it. Now, why did I write it? I knew even at the end of that year that there was a shape to what had happened to me that was much, much older than just me or my story. It was almost a mythical thing. And it's very difficult to talk about this without sounding an absolute ass. Hmm. But basically, it felt like a trip to the underworld and back. Um, you know, I, I forgot what it was like to be a human with this bird. And then I came back from that dark place back into the world of light and humans again. So I thought I'd, I thought I might like to write it down because it was it just seemed like it was a story that what didn't just belong to me. But it took about five years of sort of half hearted attempts to write it down before I had enough distance from the character that was me back then to be able to write it. So I needed to become a different person in order to be able to write about that. You know, the, the, the person in the book that's me is awful. You know, she's incredibly self-obsessed, as you know, you are after grief, after a bereavement. Um, she thinks she knows it all, she doesn't, you know. And so I needed to get, you know, get a long distance from that before I, before I wrote her down. What did the first attempts to write that down look like? <sighs> These half-hearted ones half-hearted that you weren't ones. ready for? Um, I tried to be more British. I tried to talk less about the emotions and more about just the bird because I didn't want to write about my emotions. And then uh, when, you know, I think there came this point when after about two years, towards the end of that time of, it's like running into a brick wall. You'd write sort of half a chapter and you just, I just couldn't just put it down. I realised I had to go full Californian and I had to be brutally honest about my emotions as well. And that was something that I found quite hard at the time, quite an introvert and not very forthcoming back then and as soon as I realized that I had to be true to what I thought was what actually happened the the book just started to fly and um, you know now I realize that if you're going to write something like their memoir readers know it they know totally if you're if you're dissembling it's just obvious Um, so that was interesting moment I've got to put it all on the page and what do you think the resistance I mean you describe it as as, as Britishness and I'm (laughs) interested in that as a kind of cultural thing because I think it's true what does the resistance feel like when you're thinking about putting down like an honest what you felt and then you stop and show re- restraint and um, well I don't know I mean I guess guess just that sense that I mean lots of things one of those things is that even though I was writing a book about death I still felt that death was something one didn't really want to talk about <sighs> also secondly you know I, this sense that everyone goes through what I went through everyone has griefs in their life you know and I didn't know whether I had the right to be able to talk about that and say anything new um and thirdly just just you know i knew i was writing for people i would never meet and that was just weird yeah um, but that time going past made the character of myself so much a character that i didn't feel exposed and uh, not either when it was writ- being written or or afterwards in fact that's something that people ask me a lot you know do you not feel that you've laid your soul open i'm like no i've laid someone's soul open but that was me in, in 2007 not me now i because um, i feel like when you talk about, and I just want to, I'm going to kind of come around to some of the craft stuff. Mm. Um, but before I kind of take yeah, Bill, your really, grief yeah. and your actual life and all that effort <laughs> and, uh, and 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 cynically kind of like strip it for no, parts. Be cynical, be cynical. But um, you talk about the kind of the what you describe in the book as mad madness, and I think you know with mm. you know and and, and you quite deliberately. Yeah choose that yes. term yeah. but I found those sections I mean for a start I found found them incredibly relatable the kind of 
almost switching to the kind of like shadow side of the world yeah. and how strange everything is when you sort of you're knocked yeah, it's, out it's, of the normal it's, routines it's what, it's what the you know you, you know young young people today would you know it's the it's the it's the, it's the shadow world from from it's the upside down from, yeah from stranger things um yeah it was it was weird sorry i butted in no Before i was just gonna i was just gonna i was just gonna say could you could you i wanted if wondered if you could talk a bit about that aspect of it and talk and and finding the words for something that by its very def- definition is estranged from so many people's everyday experience of the world because then you're you're having to find words to to reach at something that a lot of you know when you say I, I got in my car. Yeah. People have all. Everyone can go. Well, I can imagine getting in my car, but you're having to reach for something that is profoundly strange. And I wondered how you right. approached that, that. that. Was there was a lot of you know that was there was some scrabbling for words there. Oddly enough, you know, writing writing about what it was like to be outside in with the hawk in this strange world where nothing really had any names anymore, and that no one thing was more important than any other thing. I remember vividly realizing one day that that the house, you know, the house next to me wasn't didn't seem more or less important than the ants that I was looking on the ground. It was very odd. This whole kind of, I was trying to see the world through the hawk's eyes. Um, I've completely forgot what I was going to say then. It was very important and it was incredibly acute. <laughs> it's just gone. Um, yeah, there, so there, there was a sense that trying to get that across was easy. Writing about my own, you know, my own mental state at the time was hard. I mean, I, I particularly things like, you know, seeing my father in hospital after he died, that was tough. Writing the the, the sort of poetic bits of me basically losing it in the countryside was easy. Um, and it was odd that some of the, the ways in which I tried to get that across just came to me. There's a bit where I talk about how walking in the, if I'm out in the countryside at that point, there were sensations that kind of, I could feel that were a little bit like gifts or lights, or there was a sensation a bit like someone looking over your shoulder as you read, there were presences and, and that all seemed very easy to, to describe. Um, and it's odd. I mean, I, I, I didn't really keep any notes from that time. I kept some, but my recollection of that year was, is crystalline, I think partly it's a response to grief, but I, my, I remember that year more than I remember anything, you know, what I was doing last week. You know, I remember one, at one point sitting with my hawk on my fist, looking at, you know, raindrops falling on her head and rolling down her chest and onto the ground. And I, I can still remember the shapes of the leaves I was looking at. You know, it's a very, very strong um, recollection, which made it, I guess, easier to write about that time. Even, even so... I the question, did no, I? No, 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 <laughs> even, no. I think, no, I think that's... Ex- but... I think even so, yeah. uh, people can have very vivid memories, mm. and then can so. and then not tran- and then not translate that into something that other. You know, it's a bit like when you're singing and you've got a set pair, of, you've got headphones in, yeah. and to you, you're singing perfectly in time music, but you're not actually putting out something uh, that allows someone else to recreate that. Okay. Now, what I think is amazing about what you you know when I'm reading, uh, which I'm, what I'm going to call sort of like very reductively your prose is, is is that your ability to and this is the thing i bang on uh, on about in the right. podcast more than anything else that i get ridiculed and lampooned about is crunchy specificity oh no i'm all about that crunchy specificity is my bag I, I'm, I'm i'm you know if you need me to come and sit in on other podcasts and yell at the other people and i'll do that so um, so it's this idea that you managed to take those moments mm. and you give us enough that we can see them too. And I just 
I just wondered how, whether, you know, what you're, whether you have any like writing influences for that or how you basically make it so that, so that we can see it. I'm sorry, I can't find no, no, a better way of expressing I I it, I guess. No, I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot of the poet. So when I, when I used to write poetry, and I still do a little bit now, there's there's a particular, this is going to sound again, completely like I'm sort of some kind of woo-woo person. But there's a kind of space of potentiality that you cast yourself into where the words kind of come. And, you know, I'm, sometimes it doesn't work. And sometimes you're, you know, you're, you're hammering on the desk. But you kind of un, unmoor yourself slightly from your conscious uh needs to write and the words if you're lucky will just come out and then you can sort of watch them come out I mean I'm a terrible person like seriously Tim when, when I talk I never know what I'm going to say until I hear myself say it I, I I'm not the kind of person that has a constant mental you know I you know when I'm not talking I'm not really thinking <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking I'm just experiencing what's around me I don't have that that constant interior monologue and I don't have it when I'm writing too the words just sort of come out and I, I look at them on the page as they come out and then as I read them the next the next bit seems to fit and that will go down like you know I'm when I was writing the book I would have to read the whole book from the beginning to the very end where I left it to keep going because it seemed to me that you I had to keep Keep this thing going. Every day or just when you've taken a break? Every day. Every Sometimes day? It took quite a long time. To, I'm a speed reader, though. This is my X-Man skill. I, I read ridiculously. How fast? I don't know what it is, but I, it all. It, this is a really, really sad story. So it all came from when I was a really, really small kid. My mum would drive me to school. I was tiny. And there were military signs. We, we were Our house was next to military um, exercise land in Lightwater in Camberley, near Camberley. And um, there'd be these big red signs saying, danger, keep out. And I used to, I wanted to have to read them. But we went past them really fast. So I used to try and capture the whole thing in my head so I could remember them. So I got I got Danger Keep Out quite quickly, but Danger Unexploded Ordnance took me months. <laughs> but that's how I, this, this sense of grabbing hold of text. And I, I that's how I, I mean, it, it sounds really wanky, doesn't it? I'm, I'm not sorry a, if I'm... Not at all. No, it sounds, weirdo. it's really, I think people are so, no, I. you know what, Helen, seriously, I think mm -hmm. so many writers invent, a more palatable story of how they work and how they write um because the truth is don't i don't know, know. No, I don't know. or yeah. sometimes I just... it's horrible sometimes it... i mean i remember at one point you know the phone would ring and i'd become completely convinced it was my editor although he never uses the phone and i'd be literally hiding under my desk crying you know <sighs> i mean uh, it's tough some days it's some days it's like you know it's it's the you know, trying to move the mountain and some days it, you're, you know you're on the back of a thoroughbred going towards the finish line at top speed so i just that was something I had to learn, Tim. That was that was that not every day would be the same, and and I also had to. Sorry, we're going into the craft thing here, but I also had to learn that sometimes when there was a mistake or I couldn't get any further and I'd get more and more frustrated, I had to go away. I had to walk away for a week, two weeks sometimes, and in that time, it was sorting itself in my head the problem that I'd met and that sense of giving yourself permission to have time off in order to continue was a huge revelation to me. Um, I had no idea that that was something I mean obviously you can use it as an excuse but it was really important to me that that sense that um sometimes you need not to be typing that's I think it's I think it's really hard for people to I found it really I've, I've constantly wanted and I think part of my impulse speaking to authors is uh on this show is because I want some I want people to give me like these like basically like big pieces of craft timber that I can just whenever I face a problem I they can just give me a little subroutine and I execute it and it gets me to the next stage because at least I won't feel 
guilty and so many people have said sometimes you have to wait and that said I mean I do get from what you were saying that some of it is a way of is also been a way of having those experiences and it's a way of seeing so being present for those things when they happen and actually you know and you've got some of these filters already yeah. you know you've got the artist's filter you've yeah. got slightly the you've kind got of your Shakespeare in the background yeah. yeah yeah those things kind of feed in perhaps on some kind of like subliminal level but they're all yeah that's all the um the breathing in part of inspiration yeah, where you're coming in but yeah yeah absolutely but then you don't no one knows how you do that bit yeah and then, and then there's just a black there's a to a certain extent a black right. box yeah, yeah. and then some stuff will hopefully come out if you as long as you're at the page but you can't but not always yeah, yeah the, the mechanism is odd I, I must tell you about the time about, about, about two years ago I I uh, I have real activation energy is hard I'm, I'm quite a procrastinator and I find it quite hard to sit down in fact I was talking to a very famous film writer screenwriter once and he said to me that you know he's famously only works at night and I said why do you always work at night he said I'm, it takes me until 8pm to be brave enough to open the file that's why I work at night and I was like it's not just me so um yeah so I was in America I had to write a piece of the New York Times it was very late I was incredibly tired I'd been doing this book tour and a friend of a friend's sister said to me do you want to take one of my ADHD drugs you know my you know that kind of modafinil you know the sort of stuff that the US Air Force gives its pilots to you know stay awake for days on end and I was like what does it do and she went it'll make you concentrate and I'm like great that's what I need so I remember vividly now I remember getting up in the morning because my writing normally is that, you know, I'll sit down, write for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, have a cup of tea, stress about something, maybe have a cigarette. I don't, I should give up. Um, it's very episodic. So I took this thing, I went to the local cafe, I sat down. Uh, I Unfortunately, I found a Pokemon magazine first of all and spent, there was a double page spread. You had to find the Pokemon and I spent about two hours finding them all. I was really good at it. Hmm. Anyway, then I started working and it was incredible. I mean, seriously, Tim, I, I, I concentrated like for nine hours on this piece and I wrote 18,000 words and I was so happy. And then I crashed. And then I got up the next morning and discovered I'd written 18,000 words about the essay I should have written. And not only that, but it was dumb. Uh. So, I mean, I just, you know, it was one of those moments where I really thought for about, you know, a few hours that I'd cracked, the, I'd cracked how to write books. But, you know, <laughs> oh, no, you know, there's going to be... Whatever bits of the black box that I have inside me do not work with... Uh, there's like a thing. thousand fingers I, that have I just know. been po- poised over a mouse <laughs> about know. to buy I know, <laughs> ADHD drugs. Yeah, yeah. Um, it... So, I mean, in fact, my friend's sister's, the sister of a friend of my friend said, uh, yeah, actually, it's really good for cleaning the house, but it's not good for creative work. So that was a lesson learned. But yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, in the sense that, yeah, we don't, I don't know how it works in the black box but some things just stop that happening and there's terrible guilt around treating about about treating i i feel it now i feel you know and all so many things we've said to each other already (laughs) we've prefaced by going this probably sounds awful i probably but this idea that because that's the other thing that i really got from the book and i think one of the things that resonates with a lot of people who read it is this you make space and give permission for the mysterious and the unnameable. Yeah. And maybe it's a British thing, maybe it's a cultural thing, but that produces incredible feelings of embarrassment and, my goodness, you know, that feeling that you're, you know, you might be being a bit, uh, a, a bit, a bit a bit flake but you, you know you had from a very early age you know you had the you were surrounded by these wonderful cast of yeah, eccentrics yeah, yeah, who are from what you say did not experience 
uh, did not evidence much Im- embarrassment or no, apology no, about they who they not. were. They did not. They were they they were who they were, and you know they were. I mean, I'm sure some of them were spies. Some of them were sort of ex concert pianists, but they all had these luminously eccentric lives. Um, but having said that, you know, it's not always the case that I can cope with my guilt and my shame and my Britishness. Sometimes I had to play tricks on myself to write. And again, I really am putting everything out here in the way that, you know, really is embarrassing. You know, nothing in the book is as embarrassing as this, but I used to have to pretend to be certain people in order to write sometimes. Um, a very, very successful one was to listen to the Top Gear soundtrack. Um, not Top Gear. God, that's an extraordinary embarrassing thing. Um, Top Gun. I was going to say, were you going to... Absolutely, I did not write my book as, as Jeremy Clarkson. That would have been extraordinary <laughs> So yeah, I listened to Kenny Loggins, and then I would pretend that I was Val Kilmer's character in, in Top Gun. I was Iceman, and, and obviously Iceman is you know, a complete jerk and, and has absolutely no fear at all. And for some reason, that, that was a really helpful way of getting me to write. Um, and I just laugh now, these, these tricks you have to play on yourself. And so much of writing for me is that sense of trying to persuade yourself or get round your... You're, you know, I have, an, I have serious shame issues um, and getting around those is, is hard. And uh, yeah, you have to just keep playing tricks on yourself. That's so exciting and fun, though. That sounds to me that I could, to the idea now that I get to go and yeah. listen right. to a theme tune of yeah. something and imagine myself writing you know, as who, a character. Also, it's very good. Tony Stark from, from Iron Man. Is oh, awesome. nice. Yeah, I just recommend, like, you know, these, these characters are very useful uh, sort of, Monkey people to work to write through. So the kind of like trend of of, of of slightly kind of like stubborn assholes. Oh, Is it? Yeah, yeah, absolute assholes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, then, um, but but kind but, of yeah. no nonsense as well. But ones who would not be scared by having to write three thousand words. You know, I can't imagine you know Val Kilmer's character thinking you know. I've just, you know, shot down some Russian MIGs, but now, you know, how am I going to do this? Of course you're going to do it. Oh, yeah. God, it's really shit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I get it again, you know, it's it's uh, it's very embarrassing confessing these things. But, you know, when you're in the middle of something, a particular, particularly a long book, as you know, there comes points where you just don't really know what you're doing. So you need someone to pretend. I mean, I do. I just need to pretend to be someone else for a bit to get over the, the, the hump. Yeah, I've, I've had like, like flop sweats at 3am where know. you just think... Oh my God! Who? I don't. I don't. I don't. I guess I should probably try and be Virginia Woolf, not rather than you know someone from the Avengers. But you know, it's just what it's just me. So. um, But that's but that's kind of but that to me that that is that that taps into a whole like storied tradition of people. Whether it's the muse or whether or whether you're literally talking about someone like Pearl Curran who writes as patience worth and has permission sudden you know when I teach writers I've got a I I often say right you're now all going to be translators and they invent a character who um the only thing is the character has to be dead and they have to be um English wasn't their first language and then and then they write translating after they've written this fake biography, I announced that they're going to uh, translate two of their poems mm-hmm. into English. Of course, these poems don't exist. Oh, that's fantastic. And the most gruff captains of industry you can imagine end up writing like 
achingly sentimental pastoral poems about living kind of like on an island uh, off the coast of uh, off the coast I of Wales. I and love it. This is saying so much about themselves. Yeah, the hidden parts of themselves they've brought to. Uh, and often those things are wonderful. often they're bloody good. Yeah, but yeah. they give them permission yeah. to basically disavow what they've written. Giving them permission to do things is is really really hard. And um, yeah, I mean I've I've. Certainly found that. And then I had a massive knocking confidence after I started writing for, for American newspapers. Um, so so I, I, my editing process is really weird. You know, I, I, maybe it's the poetry, but I, I, I edit sentence to sentence, paragraph to paragraph. As I say, write, read through. And I can't go on unless I've made everything fit together beforehand. Um, and, then, and, then it, and then, like you were saying, with the paintings, and, yeah, and you, so you're looking for that out, point where yeah. it locks you yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I have a very hands-off editor in 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 in, um, in Britain, and and um, so you know it was all there wasn't really very much editing at all done to the to H.S. for Hawk, and I started working for the New York Times magazine, and suddenly it was so funny. I would get these drafts back, and they, you know we'd have four or four rounds of corrections and rewritings, and I would feel like I was the worst person in the world, and then you know that would go off, and then the fact checker would come back, you know, asking me to prove various observations and whatever. And for about, you know, a good few months, I honestly was on the floor. I thought I was the worst writer in the world. And then, of course, I realised that that's just a different tradition of writing. And in America, um, places like the New York Times, if they're working with you, they they see the editor and you as a, as a collaborative, you know, duo. And uh, it took me a long time to realise that. And that's really helped me, actually, that sense of not being, not clinging in in sort of terror. And, the... and this is post H's for Hawk, This is right? post H's so, for Hawk, So yeah. because imme- what I've immediately got to pick up on here yeah. is that there will be a bunch of people listening who would go, oh, but wait a minute. You've written this tremendously successful book. The um, magic, the affairias come along and doinked you on the head with the magic wand of legitimacy. That's how it feels. You are now, you are now a real writer. How I could you ever like experience, that. how could you ever experience self Doubt ah, again. I mean, like, okay, I'm, no, I think no, I'm no. right in saying that that really wasn't H.S. Falk on Barack Obama's summer reading. Yeah, it, list. Was, written, it was read by Barack Obama. I, I, I mean, it's just it just doesn't really seem real. And I'm just laughing my head off over here, very quietly inside, because frankly, you know, the the success happened. It was completely unexpected. I thought that all my issues would just go poof, vanish. Um, it turns out they haven't. Um, I've got some new issues now, <laughs> but. All the fear and all the sense that you're not, I'm not good at it, I'm a fraud, I'm an imposter, they're never going to go away. I mean, I just have to live with them now. I mean, whenever I write anything, I'm always thinking this is terrible, no one's going to read it, I'm the worst. I mean, I love writing, it's not that I don't love doing it, but those voices, I have to, I have to live with them. They're, they're never gonna because go now away. you've just got a group of people now that you're f- afraid of disappointing, right? Or, yeah. or not? Yeah, yeah. My, my publishers certainly... Um, you know, I'm I'm quite a slow writer. Um, I procrastinate quite a lot. Um, again, it's all fear based. I'm 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 a very sort of fearful person in many many ways. Um, I mean, I'm more confident about about my writing in many ways. But yeah, that that sense of of fraudulency is. I really had hoped it would go, but um, nah, it's me. Do you think? Have you? Have you had any inkling of times when that sense of fraudulent of of being an imposter has receded? Because I tell you something, I'm sure that people will be listening. People hear it and they go, "Ah, but you're not. But you are. You are brilliant." And it's funny how even when people say that, that there's just like a 
there's the ability to go, no, you don't, but you don't know no, no, me. No, I think that would be, I mean, it, I think it would be very, I mean, I say this, I mean, I'm, I'm really serious about saying that I feel like an imposter pretty much all the time, but I think it would be extremely offensive for me to, to try and argue with people that that's the case. You know, I, I, of course, you know, it's not the case. I mean, I've been absurdly lucky. Uh, I wrote a book that seemed to catch the zeitgeist in, in some way. Um, that's how I feel, but I'm not going to argue with people. Or say. possibly it, a, it exposed a huge critical blind spot across the whole of the reading public, everybody. That's no, the, that's I, had, the... <laughs> I had a really bad review from an Irish newspaper. It was unbelievably bad. It was, it was like, honestly, it was amazing. It was like, do you ever see that Father Teb where the woman's with the shopping bags sort of waving them saying, do we have to be racist now? Yeah, yeah. I and mean, obviously it wasn't a racist review, but it was like sh- shouting at strangers in the, in the street, furious with me. And it was amazing. Um... I mean, I think I'm just old enough to know now that, of course, you can't write something that everyone likes. People are going to people are loathe it. I mean, you know, S is for shit was one one legendary Amazon review. <laughs> That's really, like really a football job. I mean, I've been called a feminazi libtard. I've been called a, a Prozac queen, a self-indulgent cow. You know, I mean, you know, whatever. I just, you know, you, you just have to do your best by the work and... Um, yeah, you just see what happens. Has there been any ways that it's connected uh, with people that have... Um have been nice yes cookie okay so there's been many people who obviously you know done all these book tours in america i've been all over the world now it's been astonishing and i've met some amazing people and i met some horrible people but mainly good people and and i'm what's happened obviously the book's about grief in many ways so i get people in lines afterwards coming up to get my book their book signed and often they will have stories of grief and loss of a magnitude far greater than mine and they'll want to talk to me about them and uh, of course, I'll listen, and I feel it's it's a role that you know it's they just need to to say things, and they feel somehow that because I've written this down, I have a I can be a someone to listen to them. So some of those are very very moving and 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 heartbreaking, and there's a lot of hugging and crying. Although sometimes people behind are sort of looking at their watches hmm. <laughs> when that happens. But Cookie was the one. Cookie was the one that if if I hadn't had any other readers than Cookie, Cookie would be would be the one. So this was in I think American. I think it was in Santa Barbara maybe or L.A. She was at the end of this unbelievably long line of beautifully coiffed, um, you know, white gilet, high cheekboned ladies of a certain age. And she didn't look like them. She had, you know, high heels and a, a sort of scrappy fake leather, uh, leopard skin jacket on. And she looked like life had treated her hard. And um, she was a penultimate in the, in the line. And the woman behind and before her said, you know, Cookie, you have to tell her. You have to tell her. And Cookie said, oh, I can't, I can't. So I was signing this book to her. And... She was persuaded by the next person to tell me, and it turned out that she had heard about my book on the radio, and she couldn't read, and she'd gone to literacy classes to learn to read in order to read the book, and she'd read it with a dictionary, and she wanted to tell me that she'd read it all the way through, and that she understood it all, and that also she wanted to tell me that reading was amazing, and I I I cried for about an hour after that. <laughs> I just couldn't <laughs> stop crying. Um, it was just the one of the greatest moments of my life. Um, Cookie, if you're out there, I love you. Holy fuck. I know, I know. That's but isn't incredible. it weird? Like something, something that you just drop into the world not knowing how it's going to do. There's tiny little kind of sparks of meaning. And I, I just, I don't know how it happens. It's, it's total magic. I think that's the thing that I forget so much about writing. Not only just in my own experience, but telling other people when they're thinking about it is, you know, talk about all the. The financial ups and downs of it, and uh, oh, yeah, the, yeah, the 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 yeah. writing and the procrastination, and but the horror. all but, the horror. But the the way that at the end it 
connects us in a really wonderfully random kind of pinball it's table so of connections. Random. It's so random and also it's like it's really hard. I mean, that story is something I don't tell often because like, it's, you know, it's very easy to tell that story and people think that you're, that I'm saying, oh, look what I've done. But it's it's not me. It's just this moment where some words connected with someone and something happened. And yeah, as you say, that's that's the magic. That's the magic. But it's, it's, it's yeah, and it's not, it's it's that, but it's that connection that you mm. got you get to be such an intimate part of, and I think that's, you know, in the same way that we owe writers uh, that we've read dozens and hundreds and thousands of those connections. So I don't think it comes across as uh, self-aggrandizing at all. I think it comes across as you being part and actually handing on a legacy that so many people have given to us, you know? That's really sweet. I mean, I, I, I get very starstruck. I remember once Philip Pullman on Twitter gave me a recipe for hot toddy for my cold. I saw that. And I, I basically screenshotted it and saved it in a special file. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it's one, it's wonderful. And, and, and again, a very British thing is to not want to come across as being clubby or too much of a, a, a lovey or, but, but. <laughs> Darling. We, yeah, exactly. But at the same time, stories are amazing and they're such a human thing and the fact that yeah. we can connect with each other yeah. through that and the fact that we can reach out through time and across countries yeah, yeah, and someone else and and, and 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 the meeting at the end is just the kind of confirmation and realization of that but it yeah that's that's kind of this kind of beautiful i think well, it's I mean, wonderful. I, it's a surprise i've i you know doing a lot of traveling on book tours and i've met a lot of writers and you know for some reason when i was growing up i just was convinced that all writers were totally awful you know they were like <laughs> they were like actors and you know the older i get the more i realize that most actors and most writers are completely lovely you know i, hmm. I was terribly terribly wrong so yeah no it's been it's been a nice it's been nice i i wanted to just ask uh really kind of quickly because you brought up about this is a question that I actually had decided I was going to ask, and it's one that I've asked a couple of other people yeah. as well. And it's just something I think is some. Um, was the success traumatic in any way? I realise it's a leading question, but. Not while it was happening. It was exhausting and thrilling and adrenaline rich. Um, I would, you know, do talks. I would come back to the hotel. I would pace around for three hours. I was full of adrenaline. I couldn't sleep. You know, I remember when one of the books, one of the when the, when the book won one of the awards, it won. I remember going to sleep in the hotel, waking up in the morning and discovering that the entire contents of the mini bar had been emptied. I drank all the alcohol and all the sweets, and they were just lying. I just done it in the middle of the night, fast asleep. I mean, it was a bizarre wow. time. It's not quite you know Led Zeppelin uh, story sort of level, but that that was kind of you know fun. Um, but I never stopped thinking. You know, this is. This is never going to happen again. So I said yes to everything. Um, the big dip came when that finished. So about a year ago, this this time last summer, um, all those events for Hawk finished, and I I just fell apart. Um, I was deeply, deeply down. I felt I didn't know what I was doing or who I was anymore, um, and I didn't know what why I felt like that. You know, everything was great, everything was fine. You know, everyone. Had, and then I realised that you know, talked to other writers that. This quite often happens after any book. Um, you have that moment of letting go, which can be very, very disconcerting and depressing. And in fact, I spoke to a friend of mine who brought out a book in January, and he's now trying to write another book. This was, I spoke to him in June, I think. And he said, why can't, I'm really down, I don't know why. And I was like, your only book just came out in January. And, and so th these things that I just didn't know about happening, um, happen. Yeah, so there's the weirdness 
after you've sent your book off to the publisher, there's a very weird stage before it's published where you don't you're in sort of limbo, and then there's this weird part after a book's done where you have to put it down. And I wasn't putting it down. You know, I, I wasn't moving on. I was sort of clinging on to it. Um, so yeah, that was that was that was awful. And what's the what's the way back out? Of that, I'm not thinking. I realise as I say it like that, it makes sounds like a cry for help. Um, I've actually been through yeah, that process yeah, myself, yeah. and it was. I think actually, I I hit a block when my book first got published, and I was working on the second one. I'd been like hitting. I'd got up. To, I was writing like fourteen thousand words a week, and then the moment yeah. I got published and started yeah. Yeah. knowing that they're like feeling like I was being watched. Yes. That's when I started to get performance anxiety. And yeah. I didn't re- again, I didn't realize, it's weird how like in retrospect, it's very easy to, to tell oh, a story about no it. I no idea. I, 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 um, <laughs> I had lunch the other day with, with the, an extraordinary playwright who won a MacArthur, you know, and you know, genius, literally a genius prize. And he just started laughing and said, you know, as soon as you get a MacArthur, you can't work. You can't do anything. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. <laughs> Basically, it's paying you for several years of not working because you, you are so worried about this you know, this, this sudden, this notion that you're a genius, this notion that you're a success, that it just stops you from working. It's a weird thing. I don't, I don't really... And then, of course, but you must... Did, did you feel, because this is what I've experienced yeah. uh, on a much smaller level, but, like, that once you kind of accept, oh, well, I'm fucked then, I'm never going to write again, and I'm going to be exposed, and I'm going to be, like, paraded through the street while people, like, shout, shame, shame. Yeah. You go, oh, well, now I'm just another... Sh- I'm just a shit muncher again. Yeah. Do I still want to just write for my own it, it, fun? I kind of do. I kind of like it. Yeah. Oh, like have you? Have you? And it's the, it's fine if the answer is no. But have you refound your enjoyment in writing? Yes and no. Um, the no because a lot of the time I'm just panicking. I, uh, but every so often again, not by becoming Val Kilmer or becoming, you know, Robert Downey Jr. in my mind, but basically because I don't think anyone's watching me, I'm writing and I love it. And all those kind of flooding senses of joy and possibility and, and fun um, come back. At the moment, they're quite brief. Um, and again, I'm, I'm still confused about this notion of, you know, I, I do a lot of writing in airports and on planes because <laughs> this is going to, I'm saying way too much here. But, and also on the A14 uh, Starbucks near Cambridge, um, because I just think those are places where no one knows where I am and they can't get to me and those are safe places. So yeah, I, I, there's a lot of weird mental tricks I'm playing on myself to write, but when they're working, yeah, it's it's a joy and I, I just wish I'd never been away really. The, I wanna, I, I, I wanna, I'm, I'm gonna sort of jump into, I wanna ask you, basically I wanna ask you about T.H. White really quickly just yeah. because I love fancy yeah. and I love nerding out yeah. about all that and then I might just like jump for, and just ask about like what maybe if you're able to talk like. about what you're working on yeah. or yeah. what's yeah. going on at the moment so I've read the uh the Arthur, uh, Arthurian quartet and that's not that's not it's not not, it's not boast I'm just saying just so I know what I'm talking about and I just wanted to know you know talking a bit about fiction and what do you what are you for anyone who hasn't read it mm. should they read it and if so why uh they should definitely read the first one sword of the stone uh it's marvelous um from then on in it's tricky 
Um, it is. It is as a quartet the 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 change in tone yeah. is. I've never read a quartet yeah. that mean, changes you know, in you're, tone you're so strikingly. Sort of the, you know the joyous adventures of the young the young you know what being taught how to be king by being turned into various animals by by Merlin. Huzzah, huzzah, huzzah. And it's very, cl- it's very close to the... I, f- I was surprised how faithful the Disney film was, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, apart from the American accent. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yes. um, it's quite a lazy film, actually. If you look at it, there's a lot of things that are being reused again and again. It's quite fun. Um, in fact, when I was in the archives, I found letters from Walt Disney to T.H. White, which blew my mind. They had like a little sort of... At the top, they'd have a kind of little colour picture of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And it would be, you know, Dear Mr. White. You know, it's Walt. It's like, oh, it's huh. so weird. Um... Oh my god, where was they going to go? Uh, yeah, so the, you know the second book, you know, instantly you've got you know the Queen of Air and Darkness, you know, more goes. She's 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 boiling a live cat in order to become invisible, and then she gets bored and doesn't you know bother finishing the spell. Yeah, and you've got that amazing description of the bones starting to float to yeah. the surface. Yeah, and she just ankles them out. She she winkles them out with her little finger and puts them in her mouth one by one, trying to find the right bones. And she makes it. She makes a tape out of human yeah. flesh. She's to the... Grim as anything, and that's all White's White's mother, I guess. <sighs> you know, one of the things I really really hate about you know twenties thirties literature is that. You know, mothers really get it in the neck. They do. You know, writers have gone off to therapy. They, you know, that that's it. Mums get it in the neck. I mean, having said that, White's mum does seem to have been a deeply unhappy person. Um, you know, this is out of nowhere, but, you know, looking at the evidence, I suspect she was gay. Um, she married this man who was an alcoholic. You know, it was just awful. Their, their upbringing, um, his upbringing was awful. Um but the sort of stuff. Sorry, I'm going, going way off piece here. No, no, it's back. great. But yeah, read it. The the, the, the great poignancy of, the, of those books for me is this: um, they're books about grown-up people, written by someone who's not a grown-up. So they're about love and honor, and hope and loyalty, and a lot of the times I cry in those books are those moments where I realise that white doesn't know about those things and doesn't know about the complexities of real love affairs or complexities of actual kind of life amongst people. He's he's writing about this peculiarly idealised... Because um, it's, it's refracted through myth, yeah. myth. And yeah. it reminds me, this is going to be a very odd analogy, but it reminds me of like late 80s video games where they've taken like an American movie... Uh, or like some aspect of kind of like 80s New York with high murder rate. It's been refracted through a load of Japanese programmers. And then we've got like this game about like vigilantism in an imaginary New York that is... That just is this bizarre world, it, yeah, yeah. and I, 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 you know, I think that in his descriptions of like Lancelot. Was well, this, this is, I think, the, sorry, I'm busting in here because oh, I think you know, there's one way of reading that is even more poignant, and that is that you know you look at Lancelot, this character who's you know who's explicitly bisexual, so he's in love with Arthur, he's in love with Guinevere, he's clearly a sadist. You know, this is this is like basically uh, white writing about himself, mm. and it's really not very hard, even knowing nothing about white, to see that is going on. Mm. Um, and there's a there's a deep sadness to watching someone writing about their psychopathology, particularly their sexual psychopathology and their confusions through Mallory. I, I, I it's I'm not really selling it. It's amazing. You should read it. You know, he went off to Ireland. He he, he, he you know he was he didn't fight in the war in the Second World War. You know, despite the fact that he he didn't like Hitler, he he thought that he would be wasted as a private. He did not want to become an officer because he thought that he did not want to be in command. He thought that was wrong. 
and he believed that his book the the you know the the trilogy the the whole once a future king trilogy um sorry quadrology what's the right word Qu- uh, quartet I've always quartet been, that's yeah. the word oh my goodness the alexandra quad quadrology um was war work he really thought that that book was basically solving the matter of britain and solving our terrible hunger for aggression and war and he went off to ireland and that was his war work you know he was much much hated for it um, but that's why he went there yeah, he does, does he have that line about like people becoming sort of like uh, uh, humanity becoming like monkeys in all sort of different trees, kind of throwing. It's a one. It I I think it's like describe. I didn't read it for ages because people were like, it's a tragedy. It gets you know you know how like you know how that our knights of the round table like ends right like it's not he's not going to rewrite you would never read any bloody shakespeare if you thought yeah i'm not reading that oh yeah i know (laughs) but it took it took me a while because it just seemed like it was going to be like ponderous and depressing and actually he kind of one he suckers you in by it being sort of like funny and silly to start with so you're like i'm emotionally invested in this fine darkness and bits that like destroy me there's a bit where you know, Lancelot's gone mad. He's, run, he's jumped through the window. He's gone off into the wild. And he comes back and he talks to Arthur and he's very quiet and simple. And he says, there were, I went to some islands. So obviously these are kind of sort of turf islands. Mm-hmm. You know, and he said, and there were, in holes, there were um, birds like rabbits, but their noses were rainbows. Muffins, mm. right? And just that ability to to do that, I admire hugely in white. You know, that that sense of, I don't know, just, just, he just nails it. He nails fragility and, and, and he nails sort of vulnerability and um, he just puts it out there. I feel like also it's a quartet where Merlin's living backwards. Yeah. And so the moment, the kind, the kind of the, I, I'd like to, you know, suggest that like kind of the, Climax of the book actually comes when Merlin meets Arthur for the first time. And he cries. And, and he's like, he, because he, I can't remember the exact line, but it's something about him saying, I, is it, you know, it's basically something to the effect of, is it that time already? Yeah. yeah. It, it seems, yeah. it seems like it's been so short. And he's, he's like, he's, it's almost like T.H. White has managed to travel back yeah. to this point of innocence before it all went wrong i don't know yeah but... this notion of living he lives life backwards while everyone lives lives life forwards is you know the, the you know totally nicked by stephen moffat for river song and doctor who unacknowledged um is deeply deeply sad uh i you know in in the book i talk a lot about how i think that's connected essentially with his queerness um he has a i can't remember there's a work of psychology that he owned where he underlined a bit about I think it was is it Adler it might be Adler about homosexuals turning back time and trying to live backwards basically and that's that's kind of part I think of it um, but also this notion of being able to live to go back in time and fix badness fix bad things before they go wrong yeah to go back you know it's like it's like therapy basically it's kind of therapy but manifest in the sense of a a magician who has you know trading peter scott trading cards in the you know in the in the 12th 13th century it's 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 a masterly masterly um thing to have done because that's the thing is when you finally get to the this triangle between arthur and guinevere and lancelot arthur no arthur knows he's been told oh, like totally, yeah, and, and everyone's just 
kind of going along, going, okay, as long as we... Just, as long as this thing, isn't keep it quiet just get on with it don't and it's you? that rep- it's that repression it is. isn't it that's why i find the end the the final book so tender but so upsetting from yeah. all sorts of things including this kind of the paratext of yeah. his life is yeah. this idea that it's like if we kind of just sit on this and keep a lid on it and no one we all know what's we we all know how we, we know feel, we feel yeah. but we might be this might we might be able to survive if we just never acknowledge it what a oh, don't. I'm frigging actually, actually, i've got a bit, bit of a prickle uh, in the old eyes have here. you heard have you read yeah. um al al rouse the art historian his book a man of the 30s his second no, memoir because he um he he reminded me so much of th white in yeah. how he, he had this his one love of his life was this german guy called otto yeah. who as far as we can tell, never consummated in any way. It's not even clear if Otto knew um, who was then um, who was then um, executed in Germany as part of um, the assassination yeah. attempt against Adolf Hitler. Yeah. And and Rouse never. He then turns extreme after the uh, Second World War. He turns extremely right wing. He kind of like turns into this horrible snob. But mm. he, you desperately through all his writing. Want to hug him, and he writes very poignantly about going to this. He goes to this pond in a rainstorm, and he sees all the frogs mating, and they are some of them are strang are like throttling each other, and they're drowning. And he is so disgusted. He 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 is. It's like a traumatic primal experience. He's he talks about them like stupid in their lust, and he's. The self-loathing that has been inflicted mm, yeah. upon him by the time, yeah. and this fear of sex, yeah. oh, he can't get round it, and it's it, yeah. and, and that's what I kind of get. Yeah, out well, of... the whites like that. I remember. I mean, I, I he has the most extraordinarily extensive diaries and journals, um, beautifully clear handwriting. Thank goodness. So I went to Texas, the Harry, Harry Ransom Center, which I kept calling the Harry Ran, Harry Ramsden Center <laughs> to my horror, and. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there was, there were, I mean, you know, there's lots of things about T. H. White um, that are very disturbing. Um, you know, it's possible that he had uh, some kind of physical relationship with a with a young boy in his in his older life, and although it's not you know, it's not that clear, but clearly he was interested in in, in young mm. people. Um, and there's there's parts of his diaries which have been written in pencil, unlike the rest, and they've been rubbed out. That sounds like terrible. It's actually a really extraordinarily uh, perfect thing to have said. Actually, They're, they've been erased, and um, I thought this must be something terrible. You know, really terrible. Mm. It's, it's four or five times, and I, I, I photographed them, and then I, I photoshopped them, and I managed to find out, work out basically what the text were, was, and it was confessions that he'd masturbated, you know, four times in you know two years, and all the shame he felt, and how it was a, it was very wrong, and he would you know berate himself for having done that. And I thought, my God, you know, it's that world of shame. You know, I, I, you know, I have my shame issues, but my goodness, you know, nothing like that. That's just, it's just shocking. <laughs> and, and I felt deeply sorry for him. You know, despite, you know, all his, his very problematic sides, I felt that he was a man who, you know, damn it, if he'd been born, you know, later on, he could have found someone on Craigslist. And, you know, I just, yeah, anyway. I, it's, I, I, I really get that feeling of like, you know, the profound the shame, like anger that comes himself, up, feeling yeah, yeah, yeah. where you just go, you just go. This is like, what? Why do I, people? And of course, he's just one example, oh right? Yeah, 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 and yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, that. It's just that. Yeah, it's just that thing that makes me so cross. Where I'm just like, this is like people's yeah. whole shot 
at life that is just and they're made to hate themselves having said that i'm it's very important that i make it very plain that having said that i you know i feel that he could have you know worked out his kinks if he'd been born later etc etc um those slightly paedophilic side of him absolutely beyond the pale of course but i'm talking about the kind of the sadistic side the sense that he felt um ashamed at you know masturbating stuff like that which which just seems to me you know deeply sad Hmm. i don't think we talk about this sort of thing this podcast this is a great podcast thanks no, I, I no, I think. Yeah, it, I just, I just, yeah, he's a sad, and and for a while after writing that book, I wanted to write a book about Alexander Keeler, the marmalade millionaire who was responsible for uh, re-erecting the stones at Avebury and was into black magic, and and then I discovered he was also into sort of strange sexual practices, and I thought, you know what, Helen, I think two slightly broken nineteen thirties men are too many. Let's just do something else. Oh my God! Don't knock Let's it. It's a it. career. That's like <laughs> this is like yeah. this I mean, is my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe for me, you, you know, do take it over. Do yeah, I, no, no. Um, uh, 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 shattered masculinity in the interbellum years in oh, Great Britain it's, it's, is like it's that's the greatest subject in the world. Isn't it? I have to really like you know, master, master yeah. Master. Plus secret societies. Like I'm, 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 I'm fully, I'm fully on board. Yeah. Um, so. Thank you so much, by the way, for for doing this and, and chatting. It's I'm really, really enjoying. It's been the most fun I've I've had for months and months. And <laughs> not not wanting to paint ourselves as two sadder characters, <laughs> but yeah. Um, can you? What's what are you? Are you able to talk about what you're working yeah. on at the moment? Yeah. Um. So at the moment, I'm I'm getting together a collection of essays and short pieces. Um, just because I've written a lot over the last few years, and I I'd, I'd like to collect them. Yeah. Um, that's the parrot there. Yes, I know, I know. Um, and then I've got a big project coming up, and I'm hoping very much to be able to travel to Midway Island in the Pacific Ocean. Um, I want to kind of write about the end of the world, and I want to write about shame, and I want to write about guilt and loss. It sounds fun, doesn't it? But it's going to be great. Um, so Midway is this tiny, tiny speck of land uh, in the middle of the Pacific. It has had this astonishingly weird history. It's a non-incorporated US territory. So it has a sort of broken down naval base there. It was obviously very important in the Pacific War. It was the turning point, the battle there. Um, it's got an old cable station. It's full of yellow canaries that were brought there by cable operators in the you know early 20th century. Um, and it's got about 1.2 million albatrosses that nest there. Every how, how, big, how big is it? Did you... It's not very big. It's, I don't know, um, top of my head, sort of less than two square miles. Christ. I mean, every other, sort of every two or three feet, there's an albatross, basically. And I read about it in a 1964 National Geographic magazine when I was a kid and I was blown away because it was all super constellations and albatrosses, you know, aviation and birds, you know, how could you not? Um, But it seems to me that it's, you know, one of the things that, you know, I trained as a historian of science and it seems to me if you want to write about big things, you have to concentrate on something very, very small and then unpack from there. And I think Midway is... And if you if you want to write about guilt, then I think albatrosses pretty have it really. I was gonna say, I wish, I wish if there was some, if there was some bird that was going to be some kind of oh, bellwether for um, exactly. humanity, yeah, exactly. I could do with it out being pretty quite so loaded so. as the albatross. So, and and also like I also I, you know in a kind of quite selfish way, I, I want to write about all that stuff. I want to write about the navy. I want to write about midway. I want to write about you know pollution and and stuff, and guilt. Um, but I also want to write about me because I'm you know deeply self-absorbed. Um, you know, I'm 40 something now. I haven't got a partner. I've got a parrot. I'm basically a cat lady, you know, and, and I'm, you know, again, gosh, I, I, know, I don't talk about shame very much, but it seems to be quite a theme in this, in this podcast. I, um, I'm quite ashamed of being that, that cat lady. You know, it's, it's kind of the lowest of the low. Why? A single woman with a, with who likes animals, who's not got kids or a partner. It seems to me very, very, very sad. 
What? Wh- well, I don't why? know why. I don't know why, and I think I need to think about this. You know, this this sort of I mean, how is... you internalize what, how your life should have been, and yeah, I mean, yeah. fucking hell! If you want, I don't want to compare you to the to the broken men of the 1930s, but it seems just as ludicrous to like take this kind of like rich life where you're like teaching people to not te- well where you're inspiring people to learn how to read where you're connecting people all around the world to be able to talk about grief where you are you know having these amazing connections with animals to like reflexively feel the need to be like and I'm a crap archetype yeah. and that's and that's all I'm allowed to be I mean I'm but not- I think the sense that that that, that I feel that archetype is something that I probably should think it about. makes me fucking angry with society that like and the society that's generalized there's a J.G. Ballard uh, novel called Rushing to Paradise which you know I read and, and it was started laughing it was so close to the bone and it was basically um, it's a story about a woman who going, who's going to a Pacific island to save the albatrosses and, and uh, you know, of course it ends up that she's a, you know absolutely bonkers and she's trying to start a radical feminist commune and she kills you know a kid and, and it's just you know it's really really misogynist and I'm just like and that I think reading that book was part of the kind of the impulse to to do the midway thing. I think you know it's, it's going to be about you know women as well. I think you know what what you know because I I don't know it's it's, a, it's an interesting subject. I know it's it, and and I the reason this sounds exciting and interesting to me that about everything you said, but like the way you talk about it as well. There's this there's this delicious kind of like void that you were talking about where the word, words spill into, yeah. and you seem very comfortable with not knowing quite what's going to come out and the the rich yeah. possibilities of it you know like i have to go there you know i have to go there and it's going to be hard to get there and it's going to you know it's 1500 miles from hawaii so it's going to involve a charter flight and it's going to be hot and it's going to smell of fish and albatross poo and it's going to be very noisy and um yeah i mean there's a there's a amazing ballad story about an airman called traven who's so stricken by guilt about atomic war that he goes to a pacific island and he just basically starves himself to death living there um you know with surrounded by the wrecks of world war Two aircraft and obviously that's not what i'm going to do but there's a sense that he's a kind of tutelary spirit i want that sense of being a long way from everything and yet somehow that seems to me that midway is like that's the middle of the clock you know the hands of the 20th century swept around it but the middle of the clock is midway and um, yeah, I'm I'm fascinated. There's an albatross there that's, that's sort of 47 years old, so Crunch. she's seen a bit. Um, but if I don't get back, it's been nice knowing you. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's anything? My last question I want to ask, um, just to, coming off that, just because yeah. I feel I'd feel remiss if I didn't. Do you think there's anything we can do as writers to 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 save the world? Um. Uh, yes, but no, but yes. Um, it's like Vicky Pollard. Um, I don't know what we can do with corporations. Um, I think direct, you know, demonstrations is kind of the only way to kind of get at that one or boycott. I mean, you know, more more direct things than just writing. Um, but I do think uh, that one of the things that saddens me is that, you know, I'm just, you know, using the word ignorance sounds incredibly like I'm, I'm, I'm making a value judgment, but I'm not. It's, you know, people are just ignorant. We, we don't get taught natural history anymore. We don't know about the natural world around us. Um, you know, I, I grew up with an extraordinary butterfly meadow right next to me that, that, you know, many years later was moan and moan and moan by a guy who thought that all meadows should look like football pitches and everything disappeared. He's a very nice man, but he didn't know that mm. what was there or what he was getting rid of. And it makes me realise that all of us at any point could be, 
you know, we're all burning down the world to try and make it into what we think it should look like. You know, we do that all the time. So I think, you know, what I try and do in my writing is <sighs> try and get across just a little bit of the beauty and the diversity of what's out there, but at the same time make it really plain that we can't see it really, except through this is a trite point, but we see what we see in nature is what we what we would you know want to see. You know, we use it to prove our own ideas to ourselves. Um and trying to understand how and why we value the, the, the landscapes and the creatures we do and the ones we don't is I think a really important step in conserving them. So that's that's what I do. But I mean so much of nature writers, you know, it's sort of fighting amongst each other about fighting with each other about this kind of question rather than presenting a broad front, and that makes me sad. Well, thank you so much for coming and chatting to me and indulging uh, my, uh, my the uh, many tentacled beast that is my uh, brain and questions. Um, I feel like I've, I've learned so much and uh, I really, really appreciate your taking the time to speak to me. It's been an absolute joy. Thanks, Tim. Uh, thank you very much. And everyone listening, uh, if you uh, want to buy... Uh, Helen's uh, books or indeed if you would like to buy the works of T.H. Uh, uh, White then I will put links in the show notes underneath uh, so you will be able to uh, you can click through and, and get them uh, through there and uh, Helen if people want to find you online how can they do so? Uh, best is Twitter I'm a total Twitter maven um, it's it's at Helen J. MacDonald M-A-C and uh, yeah see you there Okay, um, thanks very much. And to everyone listening, have a wonderful week writing. You know that we're rooting for you and I will see you soon.